This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast here on the AHP Digital Radio Network. If you want to find out more about the show, go to australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. If you would like to contact me for any reason, I would love to hear from you. So go to the website and click on the contact icon. If you would like to listen to the show, you can go to the website and click on the archives link at the top of the page. You can also subscribe to the Australian Hunting Podcast on iTunes where you can download the show's episodes to your computer, iPhone, iPod or iPad. Please leave a comment on iTunes and rate five stars if you enjoy the show and show your support. That would be greatly appreciated. If you are travelling and don't have access to iTunes, you can either visit the website or find our podcast on Stitcher.com and listen to us from anywhere around the world. If you want to join the discussions on Facebook and you want to share photos and videos and get involved in the conversation, you can find us under Australian Hunting Podcast. You can also join our Twitter feed at twitter.com forward slash ahpodcast. If you enjoy watching videos, then please subscribe to our channel at youtube.com forward slash Aussie Feral Control. Alternatively, all social media links can be found on the website. If you want to be part of the podcast, then please leave us a voicemail by clicking on the voicemail icon on the right-hand side of the website. This gives you an opportunity to be part of the show and we will play your voicemail messages on the Straight Shooting Podcast. Any businesses wishing to advertise on AHP by running sponsorship advertisements, then please send me an email at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to donate to the show, you can click on the donate button on the website. I appreciate all my dedicated and loyal donating listeners and this show would not have been the same without your support. Share the Australian Hunting Podcast with your friends and family and get as many people into hunting, shooting and fishing as you possibly can. That way they can enjoy what we already know and love. My name is Jason Selms and without further ado, let's get into my interview with today's guest. This is Rod Drew, CEO of Field and Game Australia. This is Rob Fickling from Beyond the Divide and Maroka 30. Hi, this is Col Allison, hunter, journalist for 42 years and a shooter. Hi, this is Russell Mark, Olympic gold medalist. This is Charlie Jacoby from Field Sports Britain. Hey everybody, it's Tom Knapp and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Dylan Smith, welcome again to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for joining me again. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me back, mate. It's good to be here. No worries. Um, I know on the last one, I think it was um, episode 76, we did an everyday hunter. And today we're going to be discussing uh, cameras uh, and taking photos because I know there's a lot of people out there you know, that really want to get away from you know, using the, the, you know, the iPhone or the Android cameras, which you know, aren't to take pretty 
pretty good quality, but we're going to sort of be stepping that up today and, and, and talking about cameras and how people can take photos if they're out hunting. I mean, even nature uh, photos. And there's a couple of guys that I've interviewed before who also love uh, getting out there, taking nature photos, getting the best, you know, hunting photos they possibly can when they get that, you know, that magic uh, trophy, whether it be a deer or some ducks, they want to be able to make sure they've got good equipment so they can take photos, mate. So we're going to talk about that today. Appreciate it. Very good. Very good. All right. Um, again, I'm not sure people listen to episode 76. So again, just mate, just tell us, give us a quick little bit, you know, a couple of minutes, uh, how, I guess, how you got into shooting um, and a little bit of information, you know, about yourself and what you like to do. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I've, I've been a country boy all my life, even though I live on the coast for a while. I always consider myself a country boy. And um, I was into fishing a lot when I was a kid. Um, did a lot of fishing with my family. My dad was into shooting a lot back in the day. And, uh, I don't think he was really the one who introduced me to, to hunting. Like he, he taught me how to shoot at a very young age, but I only got into hunting with a rifle uh, maybe about six years ago, something like that. Um, when my brothers and I sort of realised that there was a lot of public land available, when we didn't have a lot of private access, and um, yeah, it just it just went from there, snowballed. Yeah, and you like fishing? Maybe you said in a previous podcast, what do you like fishing? Yeah, mate. Look, it's I'll I'll fish for anything, uh, really, but. If I'm um, in some of the rivers around Inverell or some of the dams chasing Murray Cod, then that's when I'm at my happiest. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. And if anyone wants to go back and listen to that one, I think it was uh, 76. Uh, so yeah. you can find out more about Dylan on that show. Uh, let's. We're, we're, obviously, we're talking about photography today. It's it's a quite an exciting for a lot of people. They love you know having those memories. So I mean, how did you get into uh, you know photographing, whether it be you know nature or you know hunting or going out and recording hunts, whatever it may be? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, it was when I was going to uni and there's a lot of uni students do I had a lot of time on my hands in the holidays and um, I've always been interested in Australian outback all the country all that sort of stuff and uh, my dad had gotten back into photography after a hiatus for a while he actually uh, he got malaria after a trip to Papua New Guinea fishing so he was off work sick for a while and he bought himself a DSLR and got back into it Anyway, um, he'd organised a, a bit of a trip around the outback of New South Wales and a little bit into South Australia that was going to take about two weeks. And uh, knowing that I was interested in that environment, just asked me if I wanted to come along with him. So I said, hell yeah, that'd be cool. I didn't even think that I would go on this trip and learn how to use a camera. I just thought, oh, well, when Dad's walking around taking photos, I'll just walk around. And, uh, and at this stage, I still didn't have my my firearms license but I thought I'd just walk around and try and see if I could find some pigs or some goats to look at or anything like that anyway I remember it was the first um the first night we uh, the first morning sorry that uh we'd driven from Port Macquarie and ended up at Cooler Tops National Park and he he gave me one of his cameras and just said look here are some basic things on how to use it uh off you go uh we had another friend with us as well and we had a laptop computer with us on the trip and We'd just take photos all day, uh, all morning, drive to a new location, take photos all over next morning, and then we'd just constantly be looking at these photos we were taking on the on the laptop throughout the trip. And uh, and I basically learnt the bare essentials of photography that trip, but I also um, became really passionate about wanting to spend more time in those areas and document 
the kind of things I like to do in those areas. Um, so it was that trip that definitely started me and then we since did another trip and uh, then after I left uni and got a job, then I bought my own camera and uh, have been doing the same thing ever since. Yeah, right. Interesting stuff. I mean, um, when we're sort of, um, you know, taking, oh, sorry, let's go back to the first one. Let's, actually, let's, good, let's talk about equipment. Let's get into the crux of it straight away because I think a lot of people, you know, don't really know much about cameras, you know, what sort of price range. I guess it's going to come down to their budget. Um, yep. What kind of camera should people be looking at? I mean, again, most of us have got the iPhones, the Androids, and those sort of phones, which take, you know, pr- yeah, pretty good photos. I guess at a pinch, you know, if you if yeah, you need can. one out in the yeah. field in the back pocket. So, what sort of you know equipment should people use? And let's talk about budgets, prices, and stuff like that. Yeah, no worries. Well, um, I'll be I'll be straight up and say I honestly don't know a great deal about all of the different gear because I do quite a lot with not much. Um, it's it's a common thing to see people. Um, I've mentioned... I've all been the gear but no talk. idea. Is that sort of it or...? Oh, well, <laughs> sometimes you get that, but sometimes you get people who don't know much and they want to get into it and they believe that they do need heaps of stuff to be good at it. Um, I've discussed a little bit on, on forums about this in the past and... Um, a lot of us who are getting pretty good at this kind of thing have, have had people say to us something like, oh, you know, the, um, what sort of camera do you have? Because, you know, you take, it takes really nice pictures. And um, anyone who knows anything about photography will tell you that the person using the camera is so much more important than the camera itself. So as an example... Um, you could have an iPhone or an Android phone or something like that, and the cameras in them are relatively decent nowadays. And uh, if they were to go out on a hunting trip, they could probably still take pretty decent photos just because they know what they're doing. Whereas if you've got all this stuff and you don't know how to use it, it's going to make life hard, particularly um, if you are approaching taking photos from a hunting standpoint where you've already got... um, a backpack, knives, drink bottles, food, all that sort of stuff. You you don't want to be carrying around a whole lot of stuff. And I, I carry more than most, and I still don't carry very much. Um, but if we get on certain on certain kinds, I mean, really, you can you can spend a few hundred dollars on what they call a basic point and shoot camera. Um, I'm familiar with Olympus, but there are a lot of good brands out there. Um, Olympus sort of came out of a while ago now these ones called Olympus Tough that were shockproof and waterproof and, and I had one of those on uh, in my pocket for a while as I was hunting um, you can go right up to the big DSLRs um, and they obviously most of them are capable of taking exceptional photos but personally I find them too bulky to want to carry around all day when I'm hunting so I'm not even sure how long ago these kinds of cameras came about, but you can get these cameras now called mirrorless cameras where the sensor inside the camera is just as capable as the sensor inside a big DSLR or any of those things, but they don't have that sort of um, mirror system inside them that DSLRs have that makes them so bulky. So you can get uh, a pretty small camera um, that is very capable. And um, I'm just trying to think how much money I spent. It might have been 
probably about four years ago now. I might have spent eight hundred and ninety dollars, and I got um, uh, with an Olympus EPL two and a lens which extends uh, it goes from fourteen millimeters right up to one fifty millimeters. So it kind of goes from wide angle to being able to zoom in a, a decent way. And that was $890. That same camera now, I don't even know if you could buy it anymore. It's been completely outdated. But the lens <laughs> yeah. um, the lens is the better investment. If you are going to move away from having just your regular little point-and-shoot thing that goes in your pocket and you want to buy something that has detachable lenses, the lenses are more of an investment because the lenses will always be good, whereas the software and the technology within the camera will keep getting updated more consistently. Yeah, true. So you might find you, you'll get a big collection of lenses worth, you could have lenses worth thousands of dollars. You know, um, you don't necessarily need that, but there's the potential to go that way if that's if that's what you desire. Yeah, true. I know. Let's talk about too. I want to let's talk about going to that more size. You know, versus you know smaller camera versus the larger camera. You know, guys yep. know I go on. I do a bit of YouTube stuff, and as you just said, I've got a. Um, Actually, I'm looking at it right now in front of me. It's a little Canon. <clears throat> I'm a bit of a Canon fanboy, Dylan. Sorry, I know Olympus make probably good products too. No, but that's all good. They're all good, mate. Yeah, yeah I'm, I think it's a Canon S110. Then it came out the S120, and now they've got the Canon G7X, where a lot of people on YouTube actually use it for video logs, vlogging, whatever they call it these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and these take amazing photos as well. So what's the benefit or what's the pros and cons, you might say, of using you know a smaller camera versus a larger. I've had the DSLRs too, and I think they're fantastic for um, obviously you know, general photography. But when it comes to video, especially if you're doing, I know a lot of guys wanted to film with them, but when they zoom in with the manual settings, you can do the auto setting. But yeah. you know when you're actually using the shutter and you're actually trying to record, you actually hear on the camera that you know when you're trying yeah, yeah, to yep. you know. So a lot of people don't really like that, so they're not great. You know, for when you're zooming in, when you're manually trying to film, especially with video, great for photography, but not so much for video. Um, yeah. but, but then again, a lot of guys are using them for uh, uh, the DSLRs for weddings these days, as you probably know, very popular. So what's the, anyway, what's the benefits between smaller and bigger, especially when you're carrying a lot of gear? What's the trade-off, you reckon? Yeah, well, um, I, I mean, there might be people listening to this out there now that know a lot more about cameras than me. I will go out, uh, I'll go so far as to say that I... For what I do and for what so many other people I know do, there is almost no benefit to going for one of the really big DSLRs now because so many of these mirrorless cameras are just as capable, but they're in a much smaller package. Even uh, my dad, who is basically my photography guru, he's got uh, he's had a few big DSLRs over the years. He's still got at least one, I think, a, a Nikon that he uses for some specific landscape photography applications but his go-to camera is um, an Olympus OMD uh, EM1 or EM5 I can't remember which one it is but it was it's the older one of those two and uh, this is one of the mirrorless cameras it's still got full HD videoing uh, capabilities it, uh, most of them come in a kit with a lens that actually has a sort of silent motorized lens so it can zoom in and out without making uh, some of the dodgy noises Um, but yeah like um, a lot of hunting videos that my brother has made and I've helped him with and my dad's helped him with we don't own a video camera we've just got GoPros and our regular 
cameras that we carry with us taking photos everywhere and because they're so capable with making video now, we don't need a video camera. The only thing you might have to be aware of is if, um, you know, like uh, the lens that I have on my camera, it hasn't got a motor in it, so you have to wind it in and out, zoom it in and out manually by hand and that can't, um, that sometimes doesn't look desirable on video. So normally what I'll do is I'll zoom all the way in and then I'll start videoing. True, Or true. if I've zoomed in and out in the middle of um, some footage and I might cut that out in the editing process, but I don't, I don't know as much about the videoing stuff as what I hope to learn in the next couple of years. Yeah. I, I did see a guy on YouTube, he was using a DSLR to hunt, but I mean, yeah, the game weren't sort of, once they were in shot, he got sort of just, he got the game in shot, and obviously he wasn't zooming in and out, and obviously, you know, with the DSLRs, with the you know, large magnification capacity, I mean, it just looked amazing. I think he was shooting from like three, 400 metres away, and it looked oh, fair, yeah. But then when he yeah. turned around and you saw the lens on the thing, I thought, oh, I don't, I don't think that's going to be too practical, carrying that in the field. Yeah, so. yeah well, um, that's, the lens that I have, I've only got one of the lens, and the main one I use, and I bought that one because uh, my main lens bugged up. I had to send it away to get fixed. So I just bought another small one to get me by while that one was getting fixed. But yeah, it goes from 14 millimeters to 150 millimeters. So 14 is kind of on that um, lighter edge of wide angle, and wide angle can be great for getting in close to. Uh, something that somebody's shot for a trophy shot or really big landscape photos but then going all the way out to 150 it's it's got a fair bit of zoom to be able to um, take some live game shots without having to get really close and it's got a lot of applications um i've been hunting with my younger brother before who's got a a lens that goes i think from 70 to 300 i think that might be right and it's um he specifically bought that one to have on his camera on a tripod so he could zoom in much further and get video of game uh, before we hunted it, I suppose. Um, To just put that camera in your backpack with that lens on it, it's not as practical. But if you're prepared to do it, obviously you can get away with it. But um, I like to definitely find a a happy medium. Um, But if you're just a regular person who doesn't, you don't think you want to get involved in a lot of the video or the... the, um, uh, photos of, of the game alive or anything like that I mean you can just get away with a, a regular small lens I think a lot of these cameras are coming out with something like a 12 to 40 millimeter or something like that and that'll be able to do most of what you need pretty easily yeah is it better because I'm getting you know, I'm on a few sites now actually while we're talking just looking and some of them like my Canon the less 110 which I use for YouTube videos and taking photos you know when I sort of go out in the field duck hunting is it better the ones to buy even if it's a point-and-shoot, one of the bigger ones, or a little bit bigger, so you can actually, the ones that have interchangeable lens, is that recommended? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, um, just the way that I have been taught how to photograph, um, my dad had just so much gear, a whole bunch of lenses at his disposal, so I learned <laughs> how to be able to um, take different kinds of photos with different lenses and all that sort of stuff, and as a result, the way I really like to do things is I like a camera that is capable of changing the lenses because you can buy lenses that, um, for a lot of different purposes and you can have a really good um, a base of, of gear that can that can be very versatile. But um, as I said, it, it's up to what the individual needs. If, if they just want a decent enough camera to go out and take good photos of stuff that they've hunted, as I said before, it's more important that they know how to take a photo than the gear, so they they might spend you know four hundred bucks on a 
on an Olympus Task Force, something similar like point and shoot in that regard. And if they learn how to take really good photos just with that camera and then they decide they want more, they can always upgrade. But uh, And that would probably be better than spending thousands on gear, not knowing really how to use it, and then getting disheartened because your photos aren't very good and feeling, well, I've spent all this money and the photos aren't real good, so something must be wrong. So that's the way I would look at it for sure. You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast here on the AHP Digital Radio Network. We're just going to go to a quick break and we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Drop everything. The Double S Double A Shot Expo is coming to Brisbane, showcasing the shooting industry's commitment to ethical hunting and conservation with safety seminars, workshops and gun dog demonstrations. An indoor shooting range. Activities for children, giveaways and prizes for the whole family. The Double S Double A Shot Expo, RNA Showgrounds, Brisbane, August 22nd and 23rd. Book online or pay on the day. Visit shotexpo.com.au. For everything Bushnell, go to Red Fox Outdoor Supplies online store. For a full range of Bushnell rifle scopes, rangefinders, binoculars, night vision, spotting scopes and hoppies gun cleaning products. Red Fox are also major online retailers for the popular Aussie Maxbox brand and the rest of the innovative products distributed by Eagle Eye Hunting Gear, all at Red Fox Outdoor Supplies. So go to the website redfoxoutdoorsupplies.com.au or phone Greg on 0412 495 712. Do you hunt deer and want to learn the correct techniques for a quality wall mount and premium eating venison? Double S Double A Sydney Branch provides hunter education courses to help you become a better hunter and to utilise harvested game in the most effective way possible. Course content includes gunning, butchering and caping from experienced hands-on instructors using locally harvested deer. There is no gear required and also includes a barbecue lunch. Courses are held every first Sunday of each month with an 8am sign-in for a 9am start. Course running time is approximately 6 hours and the venue is Silverdale Rifle Range. Cost is $50 per person so call Andy Mallon at Silverdale Rifle Range on 02-4653-1440 or visit sydney.net. So let's talk about a little bit about that price range. Someone wants to get in there because I mean, a lot of my listeners, you know, they may be you know, city based, they could be country based. Now they haven't got a lot of money, you know, to say to spend on something. Say, you know, if they had like say five hundred dollars to start on buying a little nice little camera to get great shots, is that achievable? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I can't even remember specific models, but a lot of those point and shoot ones now that are sort of. Um, waterproof and shockproof and those kind of things they appeal to people especially hunters who might be out in the bad weather and all that sort of stuff and they are so capable of taking great photos my mum uh, went on a trip over to europe oh, last year or the year before and, and just took one of them and came back with a whole bunch of great photos um yeah i, I mean i would say easily less than five hundred dollars and also have a look at the, the used market. I know some people are dodgy about buying used rifles or cars or any of those kind of things, but a lot of this um, this technology in these cameras is getting upgraded <coughs> excuse me, so quickly that uh, you can get into probably a, a camera that's not that old and is still perfectly capable for not much money. So as an example, um, 
when I bought my first camera, which is the one I still use today, I think it was, yeah, $890 delivered for the body and the lens. And the lens, I think, is worth about $750 by itself. And if, I mean, I don't even know, if I was to sell the camera body I have now, I probably wouldn't even get $100 for it. So it's not worth me selling it, but if there was someone out there who had bought a new camera and they had an old body that was perfectly working but they didn't need it anymore, you might be able to pick one up for not very much money. So keep an eye out on, on some of the used markets and forums and you might find something. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking, I wonder how, like I'm looking again online here, I mean, remember when I started, it was like one to two megapixels. Now we're up to, oh, looking here, features, 20 megapixel camera oh, sensors. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how much further they can go before, like, my, my eyes, are, I'm just getting older, I'm 34, so my eyes are just getting older and I can't see how good the quality yeah. is anyway. Yeah, well, the, the um, there's a little bit of a, a myth with megapixels that people might need to be aware of. And... Um, Generally speaking, the more megapixels, the more capable or the more detail you might be able to capture with that camera. But at the same time, if the quality of the sensor inside the camera, we're talking digital cameras here, um, if the quality of the sensor isn't that good, then no amount of megapixels in the world is going to help you make a really fantastic photo. And I, when I was a kid... I worked in um, one of the sound bar sections of, of Target where they sell the CDs and the Discmans and all that sort of stuff. And I watched um, over the course of a, a couple of years um, just your basic uh, points your digital cameras just get way, way higher quality in a very short amount of time. And yeah, everybody was coming into the shop just wanting more, mega, more, uh, more megapixels, more megapixels, and that's... Um, not entirely wrong, but at the same time, the first ever DSLR my dad bought was an Olympus E1, and it was only 5 megapixels. At the time, I think even that wasn't considered to be cutting edge, um, but the sensor in that camera was still such good quality that the photos that he took with it are, are exceptional. Um, the technology in that camera won't necessarily stack up to some of the technology today, but the point I'm trying to make is he had this pro quality camera with five megapixels and you could probably buy a little point and shoot with eight megapixels and people might say oh why would i get that big one when this one's got more megapixels but the megapixels isn't always the the be all and end all it's just something to keep in mind anyway but now like yeah most cameras have above 10 easily i think mine might have about 12 um the next step up to about 14 and you're getting into 20 i mean it's just the, the potential for detail and, uh, and enormous files in Photoshop and all those kind of things is just, it's astronomical. The, the quality is so much better than what it was 10 years ago. Yeah, and I find people these days, again, I've uh, sort of been part of this industry before, more so in video, but I find a lot of people these days, yeah, you can buy you know, like a Canon or a, or a Nikon or something or one of the expensive, you know, really high-end DSLRs, but I, I find a lot of people anyway um, are just taking photos and often, well, 99 out of 100 people I speak to and deal with that do this sort of stuff are always using some sort of photo editing software like Photoshop. Um, yeah. A couple of my friends just got married over the last couple of years and I saw their photos. Um, one of my friends I used to live with just... Um, he hired a guy for his wedding, which is very, very expensive, and does more natural shooting. And <laughs> he came back, and once he got the photos, he goes, I'm very disappointed in the photos because, you know, that was the guy's niche market of natural photo. Yeah, but, okay. but, but my 
my um, uh, friend just didn't didn't like that. And I mean, he spent over ten thousand dollars on that guy to feel, you know, to yeah, to that's shoot, a lot of money. Yeah, to shoot photos for his wedding. I said, man, I could have got you probably someone for around the two thousand dollar mark um, that would have done nice Photoshop edits, you know, tastefully, not nothing over the top that looks weird, yeah. and you would have been a lot happier. And he goes, oh, blame the wife. He said, blame blame the wife. Some people out there use those kinds of programs to essentially tell lies. And, uh, and it's really frowned upon in, in some areas. But at the same time, vast majority of people um, use those kinds of programs to just add a bit more spice or a bit more flair to their photography. Um, my dad actually had a shirt made up for himself and it said, of course I photoshopped it. I'm an artist. And he sort of, his argument is, um, you can have a painter paint a scene, and they might change a few things in there. And people say, "Oh, that's a beautiful painting." But if someone manipulates a photo in Photoshop, it's seen as as lying. And my dad considers himself an artist. He's a photographer, but he wants to make something nice to look at. And in his mind, if he takes a really nice photo, but it could be even nicer to look at by adding this or taking that out or doing this with the color, then he's going to do it. Um, my skills don't go anywhere near that far. All I do usually on a, on, in terms of editing a photograph after, afterwards is I might just, um, if it's a little bit too bright, I'll bring the brightness down. Or again, if it's a bit too dull, I'll bump the brightness up. I might sharpen it a little bit if it's out of focus. Um, or, or the best thing anyone can do, which is very easy, is to, to crop it a certain way. So... Um, you know, I might sort of crop it into a square if the subject that I'm, I'm taking a photo of is right in the centre or um, a cropping, is, for those people out there who don't know, cropping is basically cutting parts out of the, uh, out of the photograph around the edges of it to, to um, change the uh, dimensions of the photograph and um, it's a really good way of taking out some parts of the photo that might be distracting or might not add any... Um, important thoughts to the photo and it, and it helps you sort of be a bit more selective and, and I mean I, I really think some of the best photos I've taken were were, were I wouldn't say ordinary but um, they were just a, a good photo and then maybe I cropped the sky out to, to take out that distracting colour in the top and then they became way better as a result but you don't have to have a lot of skill to um, edit photos. I mean, even um, I downloaded a program, uh, a free program called Photoscape, and I used that for a couple of years um, before I got a version of Photoshop on a government computer that I use. And um, yeah, it was fine. I'd, I'd bump the uh, the brightness up a little bit. I'd make it a little bit sharper. I'd crop it into a little bit of a different shape and it was fine. I've, I've submitted some of those photos to magazines and they've been really happy with them and I put them on the internet and people like looking at them. So you don't have to be a computer whiz to, to help um, uh, get the most out of your photos. I, yeah. could say. I think that's good too because I want to really concentrate on the people that yeah. There's no point, you know. I guess us doing doing the show and saying to people, oh, you know, yeah, buy a DSLR camera. You know, was it five D Mark II or whatever the brands are these days, and they're like five thousand dollars. I want to sort of. It's good because I want to cater for the person that wants to get into it to start with. You know, yeah. have you know, take really good photos, be creative, and do it. You know, on a reasonable budget. Then if they get good at it, then they can consider. 
you know, at a later date to update, you know, their equipment if they if they find they really enjoy themselves instead of, you know, a lot of people do buy stuff. And then you do, as you said before, you do see it for sale, you know, at probably half the yeah, price totally. or a quarter of the price because, yep. you know, nobody nobody wants to uh, buy it. But I want to go into, especially if people want to get away from, you know, when you buy the camera, you've got, you know, auto settings, etc. So auto yep. versus, you know, manual settings and people being a bit comfortable in learning about, you know, settings. I mean, is it, do you reckon people should do a course, go online, look at YouTube? What's the best way to learn, you know, manual settings on a camera? Okay. Um, I don't know a lot about courses because I've never done one. Um, my dad taught me how to shoot in manual from day dot, so I'm, I'm entirely comfortable doing that. But at the same time, um, I have found myself in situations where I've had people asking me about photography before and, and I've just gone onto YouTube and just typed in, uh, you know, manual settings and cameras and, so, and there are so many great videos and they explain all the different things about shutter speed and aperture and, and all that stuff and it, and it seems daunting at first. Um, but one of the best things about digital photography is you can take as many photos as you want and you don't have to pay to get them developed. You don't have to wait um, until you use up the roll of film to have it developed. So you can experiment. Um, I, like, I would suggest learning a few different things and then going out and putting them into practice and try a whole bunch of different things. Take a, a whole bunch of different photos of just the one thing but with a whole bunch of different settings for each photo and then when you get home on your computer, then you can look at them all and see which ones work the best. And then all you do is just delete the ones you don't like. You didn't pay to get them developed. Um, taking heaps and heaps of photos is a really easy thing to do, and it's very cheap insurance because the, the chance of you getting a good one if you use the different settings is is good, and it helps you learn from um, learn from some mistakes you make as well. So I would absolutely suggest uh, watching a few videos on YouTube, asking people who are good at it. Um, getting on Facebook on some of the even the hunting um, pages and, and asking people there to go uh, back a little bit onto what you said with the auto versus manual. Um, auto can be fine a lot of the time, um, but the problem with auto is it's always a, a compensation. The camera is looking at an entire scene, and the camera is trying to make its mind up about what the best way to photograph that scene is. Now, a lot of the time that won't really pose a problem. Um, sometimes it will though, and knowing why the camera is uh, making those mistakes or making those photos come out uh, less desirable is a really good um, knowledge to, to have because then you can say, okay, well, I'm going to change the shutter speed here or the aperture here, and then I'm going to get what I want. So well, it's not essential. I'm not sitting here by any means saying um, you can't go out and take good photos if you don't know how to shoot with manual settings and you just use auto because it's just nonsense. You can go out with auto and, and take heaps of great photos. But if you want to go to that next level maybe and have a bit more of an understanding about what's happening inside your camera, then absolutely spend a bit of time learning about those manual settings for sure. Mm. All right, what about when we go out, a lot of these products, you know, they're thirsty on the batteries. I've been out there sometimes. I'm filming, either doing video, 
and or photo or a combination of both. And then I get this little thing in the side that says, oh, my battery's flat. I've only bought one battery. Should we look at buying more than one battery, especially if you're out in the field and you've got nowhere to charge them or you've got to try and run the car to be able to charge them up? Yeah, I, I have two. I have never needed to use more than two on a hunting trip, but I've also never been away from power for more than a, a few days because I might better go to the farmer's house and charge them or something like that. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly how many batteries a pro might use. Um, I know um, my dad, for instance, he he might carry four or five. I don't know, but um, the battery life of a camera has a lot to do with the way you're using the camera as well. So as an example... I have used my camera at work. Um, for, oh, if if uh, people aren't familiar with me from the last podcast, I'm a school teacher. So I've used my camera at athletics carnivals and things like that take a lot of photos and you have it on that setting where you hold the, the button down and, it goes, and just takes heaps of photos at once. That can really um, suck the battery life. But I find when I'm hunting, I don't take... Uh, I don't really do that style a great deal. So, yeah, um, they can last a while, but to go back to the original question, absolutely it is a good idea to maybe buy two or three batteries and have them charged up and keep them with you. All right, what about when, you know, we're talking about flashes, you know, some of these point-and-shoots, some of the other ones have the inbuilt flash, then you see yep. other guys with these big contraptions, you know, on top of their um, yep. cameras, you know what I mean? What's more realistic for field shooting? Well, especially um, if it's yeah, you know, you got that deer just on dusk or something. It's like, well, yeah. how do you take the best photo, especially in those low light conditions? Yep. Well, there there are a few different things you can do, um, and I you know well, this this discussion could go on for a while, but that, we'll just see how we go here. Um, <laughs> yeah, like uh, if you're in really low light, the the two there are three main things you could do. I'd say. One is if you've got a tripod or something to use as a tripod, then you can have the shutter speed be really slow. So it's open for a long time and it, and it captures a lot of light. So when I say really slow, if you're um, there just on dusk and you've, if you shot something and you want to get a photo, you might have the shutter speed be as low as, oh, you know, one second or something like that or, or half a second. And it would be impossible to hold the camera steady for that long, so uh, you just with your bare hands. So having it on a tripod is really good because you can just hit click and the camera does not move at all. And as long as um, the subject doesn't move very much, I mean a dead animal's not going to move much, but as long as the person in the photo isn't moving a great deal, then it will come out nice and sharp. So that's the first thing you can do in low light. So that's like letting more... So when you said just to people to get what you mean by that, the sensor opens, lets the light in, and then shuts, correct? So, yeah, the shutter opens. So there's the sensor in the back of the camera. Before sensor days, there was a piece of film in the back of the camera. Uh, and then the shutter, like, is all, it's basically like a door that's in front of that sensor. And when that door opens, it lets light into the camera onto the sensor. Now, the longer that door is open, the more light is going to hit that sensor. So as an example, if you're shooting in the middle of the day, there's a lot of light around, so you, your shutter speed will be very quick, somewhere around you know a two fiftieth of a second or a five hundredth of a second. If you don't know what those numbers mean, 
Um, once you start using your camera and you look at the, the back of it to see where those settings are, you'll get a pretty good idea. Um, but yeah, in low light situations, you'll start to get down to about maybe one sixtieth of a second or a quarter of a second, something like that. And that's when um, the shutter is open for so long that there will be a little bit of movement in the photo because it's hard for a person to stand completely still for that long. So that's one way of looking at it. Um, another thing you can do in low light situations is to bump up what's called the ISO. I couldn't even tell you what ISO stands for, but I'm sure Google will help anyone who needs to know. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, what the ISO is, is, it basically makes the sensor a lot more sensitive. So you can just sort of bump the power of the ISO up a lot, and then that will help you bring the shutter speed back down again. So the shutters need to be open for that long because the sensor is a lot more sensitive. The only downside with that, though, is that sometimes you'll get a lot of what's described as digital noise in the photo. It, it might look a little bit kind of um, grainy, I think is a good word to describe it. And uh, an analogy that my dad told me about this is, um, have you ever been listening to the radio and the reception is not real good and there's a lot of kind of crackly noise and you can sort of hear what the people are saying and then what you do is you turn the volume up, don't you? And uh, you start to hear what they're saying a little bit more, but the noise gets louder as well. Yeah. That's the way of looking at ISO. So you might, it, I mean, if there's a difference between getting the photo and not getting the photo, then absolutely bump the ISO up. And it's just something to be aware of that sometimes if you bump it up way too much, you might have a bit of that grainy, noisy color in your photo. But um, I was looking at some photos a bloke took um, on a forum the other day with a relatively new camera and the ISO was bumped way up, and there wasn't much noise in those photos. And again, it's just an example of how far technology's come in the space of a few years. So if I bump the ISO up on my camera a lot, there's a lot of noise. Interesting. Um, uh, you were talking yeah. about too. I wanted to go. You were talking about tripods as well, because when you do have those low light situations, and the sensor is opening for a certain amount of time and then closing, which would be more at night than during the day, so it can let that light in. Yep. Um, it's in. Tell people like how imperative it is to make sure either the subject or mainly the camera person they can't really hold it steady enough and they'll come out blurry. So how how important is tripod to add to the gear? Oh look, tripods again. It's it's one of those things where I never go out hunting without my tripod. Um, but some people for their particular application will think that carrying around a tripod everywhere is just a complete pain. And I understand that. I describe myself as being cursed sometimes because I like taking photos probably more than I like hunting a lot of the time. So I take a tripod and I take this sort of big camera around with me and um, the time it takes me to get that stuff set up sometimes can be a bit of a pain. But at the end of the day, if I get a good photo, then when I go home, I'm looking at it, I think, yep, that was totally worth it. You can, however, get some really small tripods. I've got one that sort of folds up into the space of maybe about 10 centimetres long, and you can pull the legs out, and uh, it might stand, I don't know, 30 centimetres high, something like that. And uh, so it's, it's not the best tripod in the world, but if it means you can put your camera on there and have the shutter speed open for a, a relatively long amount of time compared to what you normally use and get the photo, then that's fantastic. Um, I shot a deer a couple of weeks ago 
and I made the mistake of not taking my big tripod on the back of my bag with me and the deer was down and the sun was going down really fast and I just thought, I'm so lucky I have this tripod here, uh, this little one to take the photo, otherwise I probably wouldn't have got it. But besides the tripod thing and the ISO thing, there is, to go, <laughs> to go way back to your original question, there is the option of, of course, using a flash. Now, um, some cameras, like my one, has a flash built into it on the top, which sort of folds out, and, and that's fine. Um, if you've got a big flash to put on top of your camera, that's fine too. A flash will often be the difference between being able to get the photo and not get the photo, because um, the shutter won't have to be open for anywhere near as long, because the flash is adding light to what you want to take a photo of. I mean, light is just such an important thing to think about when you're taking photos. Um, but this was allowing me to talk uh, about, I don't know, sometimes I consider it a bit of a secret weapon of mine, but it's, I don't consider it a secret because I tell everybody. Um, <laughs> but you can have an extra flash that's not mounted on top of your camera, and you can sit it off to the side of whatever you want to take a photo of, and sometimes the flashes have what's called a flash slave unit built into them. If they don't, you can go on eBay and for 5 or $6 you can buy a flash slave unit. Just, a fla just type, uh, go into eBay and type in flash slave and you'll find some there for only a couple of bucks. And what that does is you can plug it onto the bottom of the flash and then uh, it's got a little sensor inside of this slave unit and whenever that sensor that uh, picks up a flash of light, then it sets the flash off that it's mounted on. And I hope I'm doing an okay job of explaining this. So what that means is you can have the flash on top of your camera set on a pretty low setting and put out a little beam of light, but then the flash you've got off to the side, it, it'll be on the ground somewhere, or you might have somebody holding it. If that um, slave unit picks up a flash of light from your flash, then it'll set the, uh, the flash that it's mounted to off. And that is a really good way of taking a photo because light coming in from the side is usually more desirable than light coming in just from where the camera is because it adds a little bit of contrast. It puts um, shadows in the right places. Um, if you don't have a really good understanding of how that works, find me on Facebook, Dylan Smith, or... Um, I'm just trying to think now where else they might be able to find it. There'd be stuff on YouTube, absolutely. Something else you can do if you're at spotlighting is you can um, park your ute off to the side of what you want to take a photo of and then have your headlights on and have that light from your ute coming in across the picture. And I've done that plenty of times to take photos of foxes and things I've shot, and it's worked really well as well. Mm. Let's talk about, I want to go into, you know, when people say you've taken some game, they want to, you know, take a photo of what they've just shot, you know, memories. Um, what should we look for when we're taking photos? So mainly I'm talking about here backgrounds. Uh, some people must mistakenly make the mistake of, you know, getting away from the sun. They're wearing a hat, so it blur blacks out their face. You know, facing the sun obviously mm. is a bit better. So let's talk about those types of things, you know, sun, the sun and backgrounds and, and what's the best yep. to take those sort of photos. Okay. The first thing I'll say is there are a lot of rules about how to take photos and they are fantastic to help you get started but at the same time once you get a bit confident 
then you might start to want to break some of those rules and you'll still get some good results. So I'm going to talk about a few things now that are sort of uh, rules that if people don't know what they are, it's going to be a really good baseline. But if there's someone out there who's listening and they're like, oh, look, you know, that's a good rule, but I always break it, that's fine too. Um, in general, um, shooting into the sun is not a good idea. So what I mean by that is this. If... Uh, the person who's sitting there with their animal has their back directly towards the sun and then the person with the camera is therefore looking into the sun, it's not going to work out real well, particularly if you have the camera on automatic mode because the camera is going to be detecting all this light just coming smack bang into the lens. So what's the camera going to do? It's going to think I need to have a really quick shutter speed to block as much of this light out as possible. So what will happen then is the hunter and the animal will end up being really dark because the camera is trying to stop light coming in really quickly. So that's, that's something to try and avoid um, almost all the time if you can. It, it just depends what you're really after. Another thing to maybe avoid, which isn't as bad, but um, is if the, um, the hunt, uh, not the hunter, the photographer has the sun directly at their back and the sun is going straight onto the subject. Now that can usually look a bit better, but often what happens with that is you'll have this great photo of this person who's posing with an animal, and then you might see the shadow of the photographer in the photo, and that's usually something that I try to avoid. So I would say 90% of the time when I'm out hunting and I've got an animal down on the ground, um, I just have a quick look as to where the sun's coming from and I set up the photos so that you can imagine the, the photographer uh, looking at the, the hunter and the sun is, is coming across the photo at 180 degrees. Um, so that way you haven't got a lot of really harsh light coming straight onto the, the subject, sort of uh, overexposing it or, or blowing it out and you also haven't got light directly on the back of the subject, which is making it look really, really dark. So that is one of the first things that I would look at. Something else that I would get used to doing is when you're setting the photo up and you're looking through your viewfinder on your camera, just get in the habit of, of looking around the edge of the, photo, of, the, of the frame. And if you are, say, um, missing out, like cutting off, the foot of an animal or the top of the hunter's head or the top of a hunter's rifle barrel, if there's something distracting happening around the edge of that frame, then just move a little bit just to make sure you've got everything in there. I know it's a very, um, seems like a, a really minor detail, but sometimes you might get home and you'll think, oh, look, this photo would have been great if I didn't cut off the, off the top of my mate's head in the photo, you know, and, and then you can't go back and get the photo again. So that's another thing that I, um, I try to get in the habit of doing, and it usually works out very well. Yeah. Let's talk about when, you, when you're going to, you know, compose a photo. Some people, you know, when they obviously, you know, shoot their game, unless it's something they can lift up to a standing level, people are on the ground generally. Um, mm -hmm. You know, do you, do you match the same height as the person, get on your knees and keep the same height? Do you stand up? Because sometimes, like, basically how do people can, like, compose a good photo? Yeah, okay. Well, um, again, there, there are so many reasons to take photos, 
uh, of game, you might want... It, it depends what you really want to show off. Like, a, for one example, I shot a really big fox a couple of years ago, and I was standing up next to the fox as it was hanging on a fence that I hung it up on, and that was just to show people how big the fox was. So I'm not going to say standing is a big no-no, because you might want to do something like that. Um, but if you just um, want to know a couple of um, hard and fast uh, or, or bare essential rules, one of the first things I'll do is I'll try and sit the animal up so it presents okay. So if it's lying completely on its side but its legs splayed out, I'll try and sort of roll it over so it almost looks as though it's kind of um, sitting on its belly almost like what a, a dog might. That's, that's um, usually just sort of... Um, presents the animal in a way that that looks better than if it's just sort of splayed out on the ground. And then, after I've done that, I'll think about other little things like maybe if its tongue is hanging out, I might put it back in or if there's a really um, large amount of blood or if its guts are hanging out or something like that, I might think about trying to take the photo in a way where I'm not seeing that. And again, I'm not... In doing that, it's not me trying to tell a lie about the fact that hunting can be gory or something like that. It's more just um, about presentation. If you don't believe in, um, you know, covering up some stuff like that, that's fine. You know, this is just the way I like to do things. Sometimes I've taken incredibly gory photographs on purpose because I might have been testing out a new kind of projectile and I wanted to show the kind of damage it did. So sometimes taking... Um, photos of the damage a bullet has done it is entirely appropriate. But if you want to have a photo that you're going to be proud to put up in your house um, and people are going to want to look at that and say, yeah, that's cool, just yeah, things like maybe making, the, making sure the tongue's not hanging out and making sure there aren't guts all over the place, those kind of things, it sounds simple, but you might only have to spend a minute doing it and then once you've set the animal up properly, then you're on your way. Another thing that can usually make a photo look a lot more impressive is rather than standing up, like if you've got a mate kneeling down next to an animal and you're standing up, you're then taking the photo kind of looking down on the subject. And if anyone, I mean, uh, I'm not sure what the curriculum is like in other states, but, you know, uh, being a kid in New South Wales going through high school, you'd be in English and you'd be learning about all these film techniques and how a high-angle shot makes a subject look small and a low-angle shot makes a subject look more impressive. Think about getting down close to the ground, low, and taking a photo of the animal. It makes it present um, not bigger in a way where you're trying to tell a lie about how big the animal was, but it just kind of puts all the attention on the animal and says, have a look at this how good is this, you know, as opposed to standing up and looking down. But again, there might be reasons why you wouldn't want to do that and it's just something to, to consider. Typically, if I shoot an animal that I really am proud of, then I, will, I could even stuff around there for half an hour, taking photos from different angles um, and trying it a few things just to, make sure, just to make sure that I get what I think is going to be a good photo. Um, because it's always better to take the time than not because if you rush, then you, you might make some mistakes and um, you're going to get home and I'm sure we've all had the feeling where we've, we've got home, we've looked at some photos and we've thought, look, 
I really should have spent more time getting a photo of that because that photo I've got right now is not real good and there's no going back and fixing it up. <laughs> Mate, I want to talk about when people go to take <laughs> shots, man, there's always some very big pitfalls people make. So what are they generally doing? Like, What are the biggest pitfalls people make when trying to take a photo? The thing that I discussed before with the lighting, absolutely. Um, especially when the, the photographer is looking towards the sun because then you just get you get things that are in shadow, that you don't want to be in shadow, and it it's just not a really um, accurate representation, usually, of what the person is trying to convey when they are taking the photo. But other things like um, wearing hats, I mean, I wear a hat all the time when I'm out hunting, but I usually try and remember to take it off when I'm getting a photo taken because sometimes that, that brim of the hat, as you said uh, before, can cast a shadow on the person's face. And uh, you don't, I mean, usually you don't want that. You want to be able to see the person's face. Something that, that people uh, make the mistake of is, is they don't fill the frame, okay? Now, what I mean by that is they might stand 10 metres back from whatever they want to take a photo of, like their, their mate on the ground with a pig or something like that. And then the photo comes back and it seems like, or I don't know, is this a picture of the person with a pig or is this a picture of the environment? It's it's kind of like the person looking at the photo has to guess whether or not it's supposed to be of the person or it's not supposed to be. So be purposeful. If you want to get in there and take a photo of um, a mate on the ground, excuse me, with an animal that they've killed, then fill the frame. Get in as close as you can all of the time and and make the entire subject the animal and your mate don't sort of stand back really far um and have the background take up most of the shot but like i mentioned before there are always exceptions to rules so you might want to tell a little bit of a story with your photo about where you shot the animal or something like that there's a photo that i remember um very well i was out at the macquarie marshes hunting with some friends of mine and uh my dog's caught a pig uh stuck the pig all good and the, uh, we had gone for a walk for a couple of hours around this whole section of the morning, and then my dogs caught this pig only a couple hundred metres from my car. So I stood back and got the pig in the picture and got my car in the picture at the same time, even though they were hundreds of metres apart. It's not a fantastic photo, technically, but it tells a story. Um, other examples might be if there's, a, if there's something else to do with the background, like a, a waterfall or a tree or... Um, if you shoot a, a big deer near um, one of his scrapes or a rub tree, you might want to suggest standing, uh, think about standing back to include those things in the photo. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only photo you take. You might take a few photos like that, then you might get down on the ground and take a few photos of your mate with the deer, then you might get right in really, really close and just take a few photos of the coat of the deer and nothing else because it's a really nice colour. So, yeah, it, it's... Um, absolutely like experiment and spend the time doing it and yeah, be really mindful of the background if there's something distracting in the background like a, a messy looking tree or a bush and it just makes things look untidy then just if you can some animals you can't like a buffalo maybe but if you can um, move the game into an area where there's not that distraction or if the light is really harsh in the middle of the day move the game um, into a slightly shady spot or if it's early morning and the animal dies in the shade, then drag it out, 
where the light looks really nice and take a photo there, you know. And it, again, it's not telling lies about where you shot the animal. It's just trying to get something that you're going to want to look at countless times for years to come. And I'll say it again, spending the time and not rushing is just such a good thing because, well, I really like getting home and going through my photos and um, and, and remembering all the parts of the hunt and I know everybody else does too. That's one of my favourite things. I get home and I say, oh, I remember that. That was cool. And spending the time then and there might seem like a bit of a pain but once you get home and you've got good stuff, it is all worth it. Absolutely. There's nothing worse, isn't it, when you get home and you go, ah, oh, that stuffed that up oh, or no. there was a there hat, was, half my yeah. face is blacked out or... <laughs> yep, I shot a big billy goat in a state forest near Inverell a few years ago and the light was fading and oh, I don't know, well, I just was in a rush to get back to the car with my brother. Um, I didn't think about using the flash for some reason. I had absolutely no idea why and, and uh, yeah, we were rushed a bit, got the photos and then we got back to the car because we wanted to get back there before the sun went down. I don't even know why, there was no rush. Uh, and I had to really try and manipulate those photos a little bit in um, Photoshop to make them usable. And I've always looked back at those photos and thought, geez, if I had to just slow down a little bit and thought about using my flash or putting my camera on a tripod or something like that, I would have got a much better photo of that animal. And it's still the best goat I've ever shot. Um, I've got some way better photos of me with goats I've shot since, but it's the best goat I've ever shot. It'll probably take me a while to beat it, and that's one thing that I look back on and think, I should have spent more time doing. Yeah, I know. I, I do like capturing hunts. I think a lot of people do. Do you think it's good, you know, to take that time, you know, to make sure you get that good shot so you don't, when you get back, like I have <laughs> once or twice before, going, oh, no, this didn't work out. Do you reckon it's important just to take that, you know, even if it's an extra couple of minutes, just to make sure you capture that, you know, so you can, you know, a couple of years, 10, 20 years, look back and go, yeah, I remember that hunt. That was a good hunt. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, for some people that mightn't be um, that mightn't be important. I mean, you might be, I know of some blokes who, who are hunting pigs on quad bikes all the time and the action is seriously fast. And for them, it's not worth stopping and really setting up a pig for a nice photo because they're killing so many of them. And not all of them are really big balls, really memorable. So I just might be boom, boom, boom. They might take a quick photo here, quick photo here on the bike and off they go again. And if that's what's more important to you, hey, totally cool. But uh, for me, I'm on my feet most of the time. And if I let off a few shots, then most of the game that's close by is gone. So I don't have to worry about disturbing a few things. And, and I'll sit there and I'll really take the time. Having said that, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was hunting some goats on one of my favorite blocks. Boom, boom, uh, had one, I uh, had a few goats down, I recovered one for a photo, and then in the process of me setting up to take that photo, I had some more goats walk up behind me and actually get in the photo. So then I had to stop what I was doing. Oh, they must have been one. farm goats, were they? Oh, well, it's just a really, it's a very steep area, so it, <laughs> if they're up on top of the mountain and the gun goes off, it, it's, it won't scare them as much. So it was a different, it wasn't the same mob, it was a different mob, but... Um, that was just an interesting thing where I was taking the time to get a good photo and in the process I did get interrupted but that only happened once hasn't happened very many times <laughs> no it's good man I guess if people want to go on too guys you know, I think YouTube is very helpful when you want to learn about photos and what you know, Dylan's spoken about today, because um, that's where I learn a lot of stuff too, to find out, you know, how to capture photos, you know, how to use the settings on your camera. And these days, I think, Dylan, too, when you buy a camera, someone on YouTube's gone through and, you know, gone through the settings, you know, and, and, and you can really get... Oh, yeah. 
it's you know, use the, of your camera. Yeah, very. It's, it can often be a very quick way of of seeing what works and what doesn't work. I found a couple of videos where the um, and the people might listening to this might even find on YouTube. There's a bloke explaining um, shutter speed and aperture. And um, if you don't know what that that is, that's fine. You can go on YouTube. And he had like a, a fan on a table, and there are various lighting situations in this photo. I mean, in this scene, because he was taking a video of the scene. And he said, if I take a photo of this scene where the shutter speed is very slow, but the aperture is wide open, it looks like this. And if I reverse those settings, have a very quick shutter speed, slow shutter speed very closed aperture, you get one thing. Fast shutter speed, very open aperture, you get a different thing. The colour and the light in the photo might be exactly the same, but there might be some subtle differences in terms of movement in the photo and also um, in-focus and out-of-focus stuff. I'll give, a, I'll give a brief example. There are two things that determine how much light hits the centre of a camera. The first one we've discussed already is the shutter opening and closing. The other one is the aperture, and it's basically the inside of a lens. It can kind of um, close or open, making a really big hole or a small hole in the lens. Okay. Now, if you have the shutter open for a really long time, but the hole in the lens, the aperture, closed a lot, then it's going to take a long time for all that light to come in. But if you had the shutter open and closed very quickly, but the aperture inside the lens is wide open, then it's still going to let a lot of light in. There are advantages and disadvantages to doing both. Uh, it really, I mean, they both take great photos. Like one's not better than the other, but, but the way where the shutter is very fast, but the aperture is wide open can be really good sometimes because the stuff that you're focused on will be nice and sharp, but the stuff in the background sometimes blurs just a little bit, not in a bad way, and what that can often do is, is take all the attention off anything that's in the background of the photo and put it all on just the subject. And that can be a really good way of, of, um, of making the subject stand out. But again, if you're not sure about those things, just type in shutter speed and, uh, and camera techniques on, on YouTube and you'll just be, you'll have so many videos to watch, you might be there for hours. <laughs> Mate, if people, just to, to finish off, if people want to, what, what's some, let's go through a couple of uh, tips that you think would be valid that people can use to finish off, like what's a few things you can recommend, uh, you know, that, that, that would help people out, a bit of sort of last minute ditch advice. Okay, first thing, um, think more about the photo you're trying to take rather than the gear you've got. Um, second thing, think about what you're trying to tell people with a photo. If you just want to show people a great picture of the animal that you've hunted, that's great. But if you want to talk a bit about the environment as well or tell a little bit of a story, then you might want to take some photos from some different perspectives to show off some of those things. Third thing is to just take stacks of photos, trying out a whole bunch of different settings or trying from shooting from above or below the subject and then think critically about what you like and what you don't like. Um, show uh, fourth thing: show people your photos and have them comment. You don't always have to listen to everything, but usually they'll they'll have something that you might have missed. Because I mean, I, I got a photo of a scrub bull that I hunted up in North Queensland, and I just was just like, yeah, this is awesome. It's a great big bull, and I was so overwhelmed with how 
much fun I had. Uh, I didn't even realise until I got home. I showed my dad, and he's like, uh, "The bloke who took the photo of you didn't realise that um, behind me there was a tree lined up behind me, and it was coming straight out of my head, and it just looked a bit funny, you know." So, um, having somebody else look at your photos is absolutely another good thing to do because it's just that bit of extra feedback that might help you get a bit more motivation or learn a few more things. The fifth thing is um, check out my dad's website, wowfactorpicks.com, W-O-W-F-A-C-T-O-R-P-I-X.com. He um, he actually has uh, a blog that he updates every now and then, and he, he has short videos that, um, showing a lot of photos he's taken, but he actually goes through the techniques he used to take the photos and discusses what he was trying to achieve by taking the photos. And seeing somebody do that kind of stuff can really motivate you and, and help you think about where you want to go with your photography. Mm. Very good stuff. Anything else you think is important to uh, give me more tips uh, before well, we finish off? Yeah, I'd love to be able to say check out my YouTube channel and my Facebook page. But I haven't got one as yet, but um, <laughs> I'm in the process of getting a new computer so I can do this kind of stuff. Um, again, I don't. One thing I would like to say is I don't consider myself an expert at all, like by any means. I, I'm still very um, basic, but I feel as though I've learned how to do a few things well that it's enabled me to, to help other people get really good photos and, and plenty of people seem to appreciate what I do, which which makes me feel really good. But yeah, when I get that YouTube channel up and running, I might have to have a few posts on the AHP um, Facebook page and anybody who has questions or anything like that, they can obviously hit me up for sure. Yeah, and again, guys, jump on you know all your your, your websites like you know YouTube and stuff. If you want to find out more, um, you can you know just get started. This is what this podcast was about to give you some ideas about you know certain equipment without really going to, you know, too crazy and overboard, telling you to spend five thousand dollars or you know, or more if you're just starting. Um, so you can get out there and you know take some great shots of you know your hunts or your fishing trips or even just some nature shots. Whatever you enjoy doing, it might make you you know, a better photographer. So again, if you want to check out uh, Dylan on our recent Everyday Hunter episode, it was episode, what was it, Dylan? I think I said 76. 76, I think, yeah. 76, you can check him out on that one, which was another great podcast. Um, so again, Dylan Smith joins us here on AHP to talk about using uh, cameras uh, to get those awesome hunting and general photos. So Dylan, again, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.